This, uh, this morning, we are wrapping up a series we've been in for the last six weeks called Exploring the Essentials. And so we're going to jump in here in a moment. I got a lot of verses, a lot of text to cover as we talk about the last doctrine. I wanted to give you a heads up, though, where we're heading uh, starting next week. Um, we are going to be walking through the rest, of the, most of the rest of the fall. We're going to be walking through Paul's letter in the New Testament to the churches in Rome, the letter of Romans. Okay, um, we're going to be taking a little different look at it, as you can see, reading Romans backwards. I'll kind of leave that as a bit of a cliffhanger for you. Austin will explain that more fully next Sunday as we start, uh, as we start the letter, but we're going to be looking at it from a, a little different perspective than maybe you're familiar with. And so um, it'll be great. I hope you'll join us for the series. Um, as is usually the case when we walk through a book of the Bible, we also have a reading plan that goes along with the sermon series. And so if you would like to uh, read along, that's actually going to start tomorrow. So if you have the Vista app, if you don't, you can simply download the Vista app. And there is a reading plan on there for you if you want to kind of read ahead at the, the text that we'll be looking at each week um, in, the, in the sermons, you can do so. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. But it's going to be an exciting series. I hope that you'll join us. That again starts next Sunday morning. Uh, this week, again, I'm wrapping up our series uh, called Exploring the Essentials. And so basically, if you're new, this is your first time, uh, I'll just explain it this way. Uh, there is a whole lot of stuff that we think uh, should not divide Christians, right? And so we always talk about it in the sense of, like, we're not going to pick silly fights. Like, every single matter of practice or even doctrine is not a reason to get mad and leave the church or, 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 or go do something new. Like, um, you know, Christians can disagree about a whole lot of stuff. There are, there are things and opinions and views that we can take, and it's okay. Like, we can have some differing views on some stuff, but at the same time, there are some things that, that we really can't disagree on. There are some hills to die on, right? And so, uh, this series has been about those essentials, those things that are essential to the Christian message and the Christian faith. And so, uh, today, we're going to be looking at the, the last one of those um, in our sort of close-handed or essential doctrines, and that is the doctrine of consummation, which basically is a big theological word that talks about the second coming of Jesus. Um, one day, Jesus will be coming back again, and that's what the doctrine of consummation is all about. Now, this is an interesting doctrine because on the one hand, it is close-handed and essential. Christians uh, throughout history and around the world believe Jesus is coming back again one day, okay? Uh, Christians believe that. However, there's a lot of stuff like theological viewpoints and opinions and charts and graphs, and you can read the book of Revelation and get really confused or scared depending on how you read it, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff like how that's going to look exactly and, you know, whether you're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial or even know what I'm talking about. There's all these different views and those things are more open-handed, okay? Like, we can have different views on some of that stuff, and it's not a big deal. It's okay. Jesus is coming back, close hand, what that's going to look like exactly, open-handed. And so, here's what I want to do. Like, as I talk about this doctrine, what I'm not going to do is try to unpack all the different theories and theological mumbo-jumbo of what that means and different views you can take and all of that. So, if you came this morning thinking, man, we're really going to do a deep dive in the book of Revelation. I'm sorry to disappoint you. That is not where I'm heading, okay? What I, there's enough stuff that the Bible says, though, that is really clear about when Jesus comes back again one day, what is he going to do? What is that going to be? And there's, there's a lot of things that aren't really up for debate. There's a lot of things that are more clear that Jesus will accomplish upon his return, and that's more 
that's more what I want to talk about today. And then how we live in light of that truth, okay? So I'll start by reading our doctrinal statement on, on consummation. Here's the way we have it worded. We believe Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will be without end, okay? That's our, our simple doctrinal statement. Just as the Bible predicted rightly the first coming of Christ into human history, right? We've talked about that, the Old Testament. It pointed to the coming of Christ. He'd be born of uh, the Virgin Mary, that he would be from a little podunk town like Bethlehem, that he would, you know, he would live his life and ultimately go to a cross and he would die on the cross in our place for our sin. Uh, that then three days later, he would get up and he would walk out of the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death once and for all. That then he would um, rise again, he would ascend back to the Father. The Bible predicts in the Old Testament, it predicted all of that stuff. It told us, Jesus is coming, here are some things to look for. And it happened just as the scriptures foretold. And I would say that if the Bible was right the first time, you can take it to the bank that it's going to be right the second time, right? Jesus is indeed coming back. Jesus himself said that he was coming back. In John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus is talking to his followers, and he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus said, guys, I'm coming back. Okay, I'm coming back again. Then we see over in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, this is where Jesus ascends after he's died on the cross, rose from the grave, appeared to many, many, many people. He then, um, he, he ascends back to the Father. Like the disciples are standing there and it says that he was just like taken up right in front of them, right? And so Acts chapter 1, verse 10, it says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which seems like a really odd and weird question to me. It's like, uh, because a guy just like levitated off the ground right there into heaven in front of us. That's why we're staring into heaven, right? He says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus said, I'm coming back. These, um, these angels essentially promised Jesus is coming back. The same way you saw him go, he's going to come back again. And I could go on and on. Um, the New Testament writers, a lot of them talk about the return of Christ. The Apostle Paul, James, Peter, John, the writer of Hebrews, they all talk about the return of Jesus. They all promise that he is indeed coming back again. And so that's where we, we say closed-handed because the Bible's very clear that one day Jesus will return. Now, we don't know when that'll be, Okay. Uh, if anyone you know, like shows up with like charts and graphs and tells you they know this algorithm and when Jesus is coming back, they are weird and they're wrong, okay? <laughs> they, we don't know. In fact, if someone tells you, I know when Jesus, I know the day he's coming back, I can almost promise you the day he's not coming back, right? Like, because Jesus said, Jesus was very clear. In fact, I'll look at a few texts with you in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus said, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Down in chapter 25 and verse 13, Jesus says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Over in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
um, Paul's speaking of the return of Christ, and he says that that day will come like a thief in the night, okay? So if someone's like, man, I've got charts and graphs and books, and I can tell you when he's coming. They don't know when he's coming, all right? They're wrong, okay? Because Jesus said, nobody knows. Like, it could be, you know, later today, which would be awesome. Like, before Monday would be fantastic, right? Like, that's always a good, good weekend, you know? Good weekend, Jesus comes back on Sunday evening. Great, okay? Or it could be hundreds or thousands of years from now. We just, we don't know, and, and the Bible's pretty clear that nobody is going to know. So we need to be, we need to be ready. So what will Jesus do when he returns? Again, a lot of people, when they think about the second coming, they want to spend all of their energy and effort in, in some really confusing imagery stuff in Revelation and then talk about the different theories based on what they read and how you interpret that. Again, for us as a church, that stuff's very open-handed, okay? We don't have some clear church position that it's going to absolutely be this thing. But, but there are some things throughout the rest of the New Testament that are they're, they're not as debatable. They're, they're more clear about what Jesus will do when he returns, and that's kind of what I want to talk about in our, in our time left, all right? So the first thing the Bible's very clear about, and we actually say it in our statement, we believe Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The one thing, one of the things that Jesus will do upon his return is he will judge everyone, okay? The Bible's very clear about that over and over and over again. Every single person will be judged by Jesus. Uh, John's gospel actually says the Father has entrusted to the Son all judgment, okay? Jesus is alone the one that can judge because Jesus alone is the one that lived without sin. The reason you and I aren't standing in judgment of others is because we have our own sin to deal with, right? Like we have our own issues. I don't need to judge you for your sin because I got my own junk, right? But Jesus lived without sin. And so Jesus is the one that is fit to be the judge of, of every single person. And I'll share a few uh, verses with you about, about this judgment. So in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and 6. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. And I know wrath is not comfortable to talk about. Uh, we talked about that last week. Like, no one likes to talk about wrath. But again, the wrath of God is mentioned over 600 times in the Bible, okay? So we can kind of stick our heads in the sand and pretend it's not a real thing. But again, our sin must be paid for. Our sin must be dealt with. I talked about that last week, okay? You're storing up for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, okay? Over in um, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what, they, what he has done in the body, whether good or, or evil, okay? So both, whether good or evil, there is going to be a judgment. And then one more text, we'll look at Revelation 20, verses 11, 11 to 13. The writer says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Then books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So make no mistake, Jesus is coming back, and the Bible's very, very clear that he will judge everyone. Now, again, a lot of times we hear judgment, and we're like, that does not sound fun. Like, I've done a lot of stuff. I've thought a lot of stuff. I've said a lot of stuff. That does not sound like a very pleasant day, right? Well, here's the thing. You need to understand that this judgment is going to look different for non-Christians and Christians, okay? The judgment is going to look very, very different, okay? Non-Christians, those that have said no to Jesus, they've rejected Jesus, they've said, here's the thing, I'll handle my sin on my own. I'll pay for my sin on my own, okay? The judgment's going to look different. The judgment for them, the Bible's going to declare, is separation from God, okay? This is not a sermon about hell, okay? So, again, I could kind of try to walk through. There's a lot of text about hell. Jesus actually spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, okay? So, I know that that's not, it's, it's a crazy, wildly unpopular subject because we like to kind of pretend that's not a thing. But according to Jesus, it's a thing, all right? According to Jesus, it's, a, it's, a, it's real, and I don't know what that's going to be like. There's a lot of different theories, even within Christianity, about exactly what hell is. But I can tell you this, none of them are good, all right? It's not going to be some big party with like Satan and demons down there living it up. Uh, that is not the picture. Hell essentially is eternal separation from God. That's what hell is. It's, it's separation from God. And so those that have rejected Christ, those that have said, I'll take my sin on myself, Rather than give it to Jesus, judgment for them is eternal separation from God, okay? That's what, that's what the judgment's going to look like. And again, I know it's like, it's, it's wildly unpopular to talk about hell, but again, um, I'm really not doing my job as a pastor if I just sort of, you know, skim over all the stuff, particularly all the stuff Jesus talked about, and we just talk about the, the stuff that makes us feel good, right? Amen. Now... The good news for believers is there is a judgment. We will all stand before God in the same way. Jesus will judge us as well, but the judgment looks very different. You see, whether we're in heaven or hell, whether we're with God or separated from God has already been decided at the cross of Jesus Christ, right? Like for us, our sin, if we've given our sin to Jesus, he's died for it, paid for it, like we talked about last week. So the judgment for us is more what will our reward look like with him in heaven, See the difference? And so for, for non-believers, the judgment is you're paying for your sin on your own. Your sin will be dealt with. Your sin will be paid for. And that looks like separation from God. But for believers, our sin has been dealt with. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so our, our judgment is based on our faithfulness and then our reward based on our faithfulness in heaven, Right? So judgment is real. Everyone will be judged, but that judgment's going to look different for believers and for non-believers, okay? That's number one. What else will Jesus do upon his return? Well, the second part of our statement says that his kingdom will be without end. His kingdom will be without end. So I love this. Number two is that Jesus will come back and he will fully establish his kingdom, okay? The Bible has a lot to say about the kingdom of God, particularly in Matthew's gospel, okay? God's kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns completely and totally, okay? And so right now we've said the church is to be sort of a glimpse 
of the future kingdom of God. So we already live in the church like Jesus is king of everything, right? And the goal is that we show the world, we show the world like this is, this is what heaven, this is sort of a glimpse of the kingdom of God where Jesus is supreme, where Jesus rules. Because the Bible says that one day when he comes back, it's not just gonna be like a few church people that love Jesus. No, no, no. His kingdom, everyone, every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus will be completely king of everything, right? And I don't know about you, but that sounds like really good news to me. That basically means there's no more bad kings, no more rulers, no more dictators, no more presidents, no more debates, no more elections. Praise God, can I get an amen, right? Like no more millions of dollars spent on campaigns and then griping and complaining about this guy or that guy or whatever. No, 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 just King Jesus ruling and reigning over everyone and everything the way he intended for it to be, right? Like that's, that's what's gonna happen when Jesus comes back. He is going to fully usher in his kingdom and establish his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I get pretty excited about that. Like, you know, great King Jesus. And so we all get to sing and celebrate and worship and be a part of that. Jesus is going to judge, and Jesus is going to fully establish his kingdom. Another thing that I get real excited about is the Bible's pretty clear that Jesus will restore our bodies. So I get this question a lot as a pastor, right? People always want to ask me, like, man, what is it? Are we going to be like spirits floating around, like, like ghosts or what? Like, I don't, what's that, what's that going to be like? And the Bible says this, like, you're, we're not going to be like spirits and ghosts. We're actually going to have resurrected, glorified bodies. You're going to have an actual physical body in God's kingdom. And it's going to be, listen, it's going to be made completely new. So think about this, like all of the faults and flaws, when you look at yourself and you're like, yeah, this is definitely a product of the fall. Like this is not the way God intended for this to look, right? The Bible says one day that that that's not going to be the case. We're all going to have like resurrected, glorified bodies the way that Jesus did. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm hoping my resurrected, glorified body is taller with some abs, right? Like that's what I'm hoping for. But I don't know. Like that's what I'm, that's what I'm shooting for, right? It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. We're going to be restored, physical, resurrected, glorified bodies. I'll read a text to kind of point this out. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, Paul reminds the church of this. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In Thessalonians, it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And again, they're given new bodies. And so, no, we're not going to be like aimless, like spirit ghost beings, like floating around in heaven. We're going to have actual, physical, glorified bodies. And the, the, the marks of sin will not be a part of that. That's good news. I, I love that, that picture, that idea. Not only will our bodies be restored, but another thing Jesus will do is he'll restore all of creation. All of creation will be restored. Um, I'll show you in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, again, the Apostle Paul writes, and here's what he says beginning in verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So you might remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God, right, that not only is, is mankind marred by sin, but the Bible says that all of creation is now marred and stained by sin. So God creates this perfect world in Genesis where there's this rhythm and this harmony. But sin, because of sin, everything's sort of fractured and messed up and broken. That's why right now in our own country, we have wildfires burning out west. We've got flooding going on in the east. We've got hurricanes coming up through the Gulf. We've got tornadoes and just devastation and plagues. And I mean, all this stuff is going on in creation. You know why? Because of sin and the effects of sin. And so one day when Jesus comes back, he's going to restore creation, right? He's going to make it all new. No more pollution, no more climate change, no more arguing about climate change. Like Jesus is going to make all of it new. He's going to completely restore creation. And again, I've talked about heaven before and how, you know, we've all got kind of weird views of heaven based on pop culture. We're not going to be floating around in diapers, like playing harps, like that's not accurate, okay? Um, Heaven is basically new creation. God restores and makes it all new again, okay? And so God's going to restore us. He's going to come back and he's going to restore, he's going to restore all of creation. No more natural disasters. And, and again, creation will be rhythm and harmony the way God intended it to be. And then finally, when Jesus comes back, he will cancel the curse of sin. He's going to cancel the curse of sin. Again, if you remember back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin against God, there is a curse pronounced on everything. Because of sin, everything is, is cursed, like everything. And so we live in this broken, fallen, sinful world where, let's be honest, bad stuff happens. I get this question a lot as a pastor, like, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the short answer is because of sin and its effects. That's why. Because there's hurt and pain and there's wickedness and injustice and war and poverty and famine and all of these things are part of living in the broken, fallen, sinful world because it's under the curse of sin. And one of the things that Jesus will do when he returns is he will completely cancel, remove that curse. Okay, so a couple of verses in Revelation 22, verse 3, very end of your Bible, the last chapter of Revelation. Verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Okay? The curse will be done away with. It will be, it will be gone. You ever wonder, like, man, sometimes, let's be honest, life is just hard, right? Like, everything about it is hard. Work is hard. Marriage is hard. Raising kids is hard. Being single is hard. Going to school is hard. Like, everything just seems like all this work and all this effort. Like, to follow Jesus sometimes in obedience, it's just really, really hard to do because we have this flesh. And so everything in us screams, do this. And then our flesh is like, nah, but this over here seems really fun. Like, it's really difficult. And one of the things that will happen when Jesus comes back is that curse is lifted, and that won't be the tension or the struggle any longer. Revelation 21 uh, talks about this. We get a little bit of a glimpse in Revelation 21, um, verses 4 and 5. It says that he, Jesus, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Like there is nothing to cry about in heaven, right? There's no, there's no wickedness or injustice. or like, All that stuff's gone. There's, all that stuff's gone, right? 
Neither shall there be mourning. I love that. Like there's no death. There's no mourning. You ever get tired of going to funerals? Yeah, me too. I preached a funeral for my, one of my family members a few months ago. Like it's, death is not, it's hard. It's hard. But there's not going to be any more mourning. There's not going to be any more death. There's not even going to be hospitals because nobody's going to need them, right? Like Jesus is going to remove all of that stuff. No crying, no pain. And this world is full of pain, isn't it? We have physical pain. We have emotional pain. We have spiritual pain. We have all this pain. But when Jesus comes back, all that stuff's gone. And some of you know, some of you live with chronic pain. The older I get, like stuff just hurts. Like sometimes, like I don't even have a good reason. I got out of bed the other day. My wife's like, I'm limping. And she's like, what'd you do? And I'm like, I just woke up. I don't don't know. I don't don't have a cool story. I just, everything kind of hurts. You know, I don't even know why. Like that's just part of life. It's just, we live with such pain and And Jesus is going to remove all of the pain. He says, the former things have passed away. Verse 5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love this picture that he's going to come back and he's going to remove, he's going to cancel that curse and all of the struggles and the heartache and the pain and the hurt that we have in this life will be no more. Will be no more. And so as I think about what Jesus will do upon his return, I get excited about that. I think the church, like we ought to get excited about that, right? Like it's something to look forward to. It's something to celebrate. We have a hope and a future, but but here's the thing. Here's what I want to end with. While that is all true, The reality is we are here right now for a purpose and a reason, right? Like we have a job to do. Our our, our job, our role, what God has called us to is not done. There are people that need to know the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. There are people that need to understand and hear and know the gospel. And so one of the things I just want to kind of end on is this, like if we believe that everything we just talked about is true, if we believe Jesus is coming back, And there will be judgment for everyone. And those that don't know him will spend eternity separated from him. Then if we say that we love God and love people, then then we have a responsibility and, and really a joy to share the love of Jesus with the people that God places around us, right? George Barna has done a lot of research over the last decades. And one of the shifts that he's seen in evangelical Christianity is like, Over the last 20 years or so, um, you know, it used to just kind of be an an understood thing. If you're a Christian, that on some level, you have a responsibility to share your faith, to share the gospel with other people. And over the last 20 years, studies show that less and less people, less and less Christians uh, believe that that is a responsibility that they have. In fact, um, really, the latest studies show that way under half of all people that claim to be evangelical Christians believe they have any responsibility to ever share their faith with anyone. It's really a sad statistic, right? Like the Bible says that that we ought to to be looking for opportunities to to point people to the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. I'm not talking about yelling at people. I'm not talking about beating them over the head with the Bible. I'm not talking about trying to argue them into heaven. I'm talking about loving them well and in such a way where, you, you know, They want to know the hope that's inside of you. That's the way Peter says it, right? So we have this opportunity to share. If we say we love people, then we should be sharing Jesus with other people. And one of the pushbacks I sometimes get from people that want to get real, you know, biblical and spiritual is go, well, I don't have the gift. I don't have the gift of evangelism. 
That's true. Not everybody has the gift of evangelism, right? I'll give you that. I know some people that do. You know those people? Like, they are just unashamedly, unafraid. They'll talk about, they'll turn anything into a spiritual conversation, right? They'll just, you know, what's Jesus doing in your life? I mean, just like, they're just amazing. They want to see everyone come to know the Lord, and they don't care who knows it, and they're just going to, no matter where they're at, grocery store, sporting events, whatever, like, what do you think about Jesus? Like, it's just, those people are awesome. Like, I love those people. They're great, but not everybody has that gift. Okay, but just because you don't have the gift doesn't mean you don't have the responsibility, right? The illustration I use in the first service is like, it'd be like me, you know, telling my kids, hey, give them some chores. I need you to, you know, take out the trash and go mow the yard. And if my son went, you know, dad, I, I just don't have that gift. I'm, you know, it's just not my gifting. I got, uh, I have some other giftings, particularly like video games, but I don't, you know, I don't have that gifting that you're talking. So I'm just not going to do that. Like, it's crazy. Like, I'd be like, I don't care whether you have the gifting or not. Do it. Like, go take out the trash or, you know, whatever. And so I think for some of us, like, we feel the same way. We just kind of simply want to sort of push that off and go, I just, I just don't have the gift. And so, and again, Jesus doesn't say, you know, share the gospel if you feel like it and you have the gift. God puts us in places in life where, where we have friends and coworkers and neighbors and family members that, that need to know about the love of Jesus. And there's a lot of different ways. Listen, I wish I had time to unpack some things for you. There's a lot of different ways that you can share the love of Jesus. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. Inviting people into your life, letting them see the hope in you, like befriending people. Um, You know, I grew up in a pretty traditional church where we were taught all different sorts of methods. We had tracks and we were shown how to use tracks and we were, we had all these, the Romans road and here's, you know, four verses you can use to share faith with any, those are, those are fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. If those methods work for you, then, then great, then use them. You know what the apostle Paul did? He just simply told other people what God did in his life. That's literally all he did. Paul tells his testimony over. He's like, man, I was pretty messed up. In fact, I hated, I hated Jesus. I hated all Christians. I was the worst sinner you can imagine. I was the chief of sinners. Jesus got a hold of my heart. He's made a big difference in my life, right? Like, it's just a matter of going, hey, what's Christ done for you? Other times, Paul, like, uses culture. He walks into the Areopagus, and he just looks at all their statues and their gods, and he doesn't go, what is wrong with you people? You people are a bunch of sinners. Worship. No, he goes, oh, I notice you have a statue here to an unknown god, let me tell you about the unknown God. His name's Jesus, right? And he just starts talking to him about Jesus. And so using culture, being familiar with culture, turning things, music, movies, whatever it is, into spiritual conversations to help point people to Christ. There's a lot of ways you can share your faith. It's not a one-size-fits-all, you must do it this way. But make no mistake, if we believe Jesus is coming back and we believe that he's going to judge everyone and those that do not know him will spend eternity separated from him, then it is our joy and our responsibility while we are here on this earth, while we have breath in our lungs and a heartbeat in our chest to point other people to the saving love of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are unbelievably grateful that you are coming back again one day. Jesus, we get um, really excited about that day, about what it looks like, about what it means for us that know you. Lord, I I just pray that, um, God, that we would hold on to that day, we would remember that day, that we would look forward to that day with great anticipation and excitement. And in some ways, Father, that would fuel us to live lives of obedience for you. But God, we pray that in the meantime, while we're here, 
God, that we would be faithful to what you've called us to do. Father, we would look for opportunities to point people to Christ, to invite people into our lives, to share the hope that is in us. And I know that that's hard for some people. I know it's awkward. God, I pray you would give us courage to do that. Give us courage to share your love and your grace with the people you place around us so that more may know. We pray for this today in Christ's name. Amen.